Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True. And I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit soundstruefoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is James Clear. James Clear is the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. He's also the creator of Habits Academy, which is a training platform for individuals and organizations that are interested in building better habits in life and work. In this conversation with James, my own approach and the approach of Sounds True historically, which has been the depth of internal change and discovery, meets external behavior change, how they come together and complement each other. Here's my conversation with James Clear. To begin with, James, I was reading your book, Atomic Habits, and the very opening story, your story of how you became a habit change expert really moved me. It was very powerful. And by way of introduction, would you be willing to share that with our listeners? Sure. So before I was born, uh, my dad played professional baseball. He played in the minor leagues for the St. Louis Cardinals. And so growing up, I wanted to be a professional baseball player too. And I played sports, many different types, all through my childhood until my sophomore year of high school, when I had this serious injury, when I was hit in the face with a baseball bat. And uh, it was an accident. A classmate of mine had taken a swing and the bat slipped out of his hands, kind of rotated helicopter style through the air and struck me right between the eyes. Broke my nose, uh, broke my ethmoid bone, which is the bone behind your nose, fairly deep inside your skull. Shattered both eye sockets. Uh, I looked down, I had blood on my clothes and um, a couple classmates ran over. One of them literally took the shirt off his back and gave it to me to kind of plug up the blood coming from my nose. And um, I was sort of unaware of how seriously I had been injured. So a couple of my classmates gathered me up and sort of helped me um, back down into the school. We walked down, we were on this hill outside of the school, walked back down in, went to the, the nurse's office, started answering questions, uh, but didn't answer them very well. Um, they asked me like, what year is it? And I said, 1998 is actually 2002. Or uh, who's the president? And I said, Bill Clinton is actually George W. Bush. Um, but I was like kind of there because it would have been Bill Clinton if it was like 1998. So was <laughs> a little bit uh, still conscious. And um, that was the, then they asked me my mom's name. And uh, that it took me like 10 seconds to answer. That was the last question I remember. Um, so they took me in the ambulance to local hospital. When I got there, I started struggling with basic functions like swallowing, breathing. Uh, pretty soon, I lost the ability to breathe on my own. Had my first seizure of the day. They had to intubate me and they're pumping breath into me by hand. Doctors got together and decided I had to be air care to a larger facility. So they uh, put me on a stretcher and took me out to the helipad. And uh, my mom flew down, held my hand to the helicopters, and went down uh, to a larger facility in Cincinnati. I grew up about an hour north of the city. And um, when we got there, there was a team of doctors and nurses, like 20 or so to maybe a dozen, 12 to 12 to 20 that kind of took me off into surgery and got me settled. Some of them whisked my mom off to a waiting room where she like kind of reconnected with my dad. He had been off taking care of my brother and sister. And as I was getting ready to undergo surgery, I had another seizure 
uh, I'd end up having three that day. And so they decided I was too unstable uh, to undergo surgery. So they, the doctors placed me into a medically induced coma. And um, my parents, you know, there's a priest that comes up to them, is talking to them. They spend one of the worst nights of their lives in this hospital, sleeping on this, you know, sticky, plasticky mattress. And thankfully, the next morning, my vital signs had stabilized to the point where they decided they were comfortable releasing me from the coma. And uh, so they did that. And um, the process of healing kind of began. And so the next nine months, I couldn't drive a car, physical therapy sessions. I was practicing basic motor patterns, like walking the straight line. Um, I had double vision for weeks. Uh, and so all I really wanted to do was get back on the baseball field. But <laughs> my return to baseball was not smooth. I, then a year later, when I finally tried out again, I was cut from the team. I was the only junior to be cut that year. Uh, my senior year, I got made the team, barely got to play. Um, but around this time, I started to accumulate some small habits that, I don't know, now I talk about them, they seem kind of insignificant. You know, it's like uh, going to bed at the same hour each night or writing out a list of what I need to do the next day and doing that the night before or preparing for a class for an hour each day. When I got done with physical therapy, I, this was the first period in my life when I started to go to the gym consistently. So first once or twice a week and then three or four times. And individually, none of those things really seemed that significant, but they gave me a sense of control over my life again. They allowed me to kind of feel like I was bouncing back from this thing that I didn't ask, uh, didn't ask for, didn't want to happen. And um, so my last two years of high school baseball were very uh, below average. Um, and then I was able to weasel my way onto a college team. I came off the bench my freshman year, uh, sophomore year as a starter. And then junior and senior year, things started to come together. Those habits started to compound a little bit more. And um, I was team captain my junior year and then ended up being named the Academic All-America team uh, my senior season, which is about, I don't know, 30 players around the country or so. And um, I never ended up playing professionally, uh, but I do feel like I was able to fulfill my potential that I was able to make the most of the circumstances that I had. And so I think ultimately that's all any of us are really trying to do. And I didn't have a language to describe any of this at the time. You know, I was just showing up and doing what I needed to do for class or uh, during practice or at a game or whatever. I never would have said, Oh, I'm just trying to get 1% better today or something like that. But now after writing about habits for six or seven or eight years and publishing atomic habits, kind of investigating the topic a little bit more, I can look back on that practice or that period of my life and see that that's kind of exactly what was happening. And so uh, I sort of came to the topic first as a practitioner, or uh, I had to, I guess to put it a different way, I had to learn the ideas to figure out how to perform, how to bounce back from injury, how to perform at a higher level, how to improve. And once I had kind of practiced the ideas in my personal life, I felt this strong pull toward them. And I've always kind of been interested and scientifically minded and kind of curious about how things work. And so the, the more that I began to investigate it, the more I wanted to write about it as well. And then once you started writing about it, it really caught on your perspective. So the first article I wrote was November 12th, 2012. And then I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday. Uh, so twice a week for the next three years. And, um, that was easily the project that took off the most of the other things I tried. I'd been an entrepreneur for about two years at that point. And most of the other things I'd done just kind of uh, flopped around or not really gone anywhere. And I, I did get good advice early on, which was uh, somebody told me, try things until something comes easily. And uh, it wasn't easy work, but it, the results were coming much more easily than anything else I had done. And I think part of that is, you know, I had this, personal background experience with the ideas. I kind of practiced it. So I knew, you know, it, it, on the one hand, it takes a lot of work to have an informed opinion, to be well-educated or have a well-balanced opinion. But at the end of the day, anybody can have an opinion. Um, it's something very different to put the ideas into practice. And so I think hopefully that made the ideas better, made them more practical, more useful, more applicable because I had practiced them myself. And then I, you know, once I started to get a little bit of results, once I started to see some signals of progress, well, then I just kind of went all in on it. And, um, yeah, the site grew, grew very quickly. So I think we had 35,000 subscribers after the first year, 100,000 after year two, 250, uh, or 100,000 after year one, um, uh, the first full year, uh, 
250000 by the time I signed the book deal, and now it's, I don't know, five, six hundred thousand, something like that. You know, I want to share your model with our listeners, and it's uh, simple and powerful of how to create a new good habit and also how to break habits you want to break. But before we get there, I have some philosophical questions, if you will, James, that I hope sure. uh, you'll feel good about going at with me here, which is, you know, it sounds true. We've really looked at inner transformation and how by connecting, you could say, with the depth of your heart or the depth, you could even say, of your soul, then there's a change that happens and you become more into your authenticity as a person. And habit change, when I first started reading about it in your book, felt to me a little bit in a way kind of from the outside in instead of the inside out. And I'm curious what you think about where the outside in and the inside out meet or how you look at that. Mm. Yeah, it's kind of, uh, (laughs) it's sort of like, two sides of a coin in the sense that it is both two separate things and one contained thing, you know, like you're both your body and your mind. They're, they're two separate, uh, the internal and the external, and yet also one in the same, you know, it is one coin and it is also two sides. Um, so I think that that's true. Uh, and so I like to think about, um, if we could just distinguish the internal and the external, maybe a little differently, the connection between like behavior and beliefs, uh, or internal story or internal narrative or mindset, whatever you want to call that heart, soul, um, and your external behavior. And I think that it's a two way street or a loop if you want to think about it that way, but however it is, they feed back on each other. It runs both ways. But, uh, I tend to find that if you want to start by changing your beliefs, that seems to be a more short-term strategy. You know, you might be able to convince yourself and say, this is where you hear common things like fake it till you make it or something like that. You know, you might be able to say, uh, okay, I'm a healthy person. I'm a healthy person. Convince yourself of that. And then that could you go to the gym once. But it also, you might say like, all right, I'm the type of person that wakes up at 5 a.m. And then it gets to be 5 a.m. the next morning. And you're like, well, maybe I'll just press the news. And um, so instead of letting the belief drive the behavior, I think it's more powerful to let the behavior drive the belief. And what I mean by that is, yeah, okay, doing one push-up, no, that doesn't transform your body overnight, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. So I think what we could say is that your habits are how you embody a particular identity. Every time you make your bed, you embody the identity of someone who's clean and organized. Every time you study biology for 20 minutes on Tuesday night, you embody the identity of someone who's studious. Every time you shoot a free throw, you embody the identity of someone who is a basketball player. And if you do those things once or or twice, no, you don't like think something radically different about yourself. But if you keep showing up and every Tuesday you study or every morning you make the bed or every week you show up and practice basketball, at some point you cross this like invisible threshold. Maybe it's three months or six months or a year later, but at some point you start to think, yeah, you know, like being a clean and organized person is part of who I am or I am studious or I am a basketball player. Like that's part of my identity. And so I think the summary, the, the way that I think about this connection is that every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you want to become. And this is probably the true reason that habits matter so much. Like we often talk about habits mattering in the sense that they get us external results. Oh, I, you know, I want to lose weight or get a six pack or double my income or reduce stress. And sure, habits can help you do all of those things. But the real reason that they matter is that they cast votes for your desired identity. They reinforce that you're becoming a new type of person. And so the, the way that I see it is that those small habits, those little votes you're casting, that's the only way for that internal narrative to really stick. Maybe you can convince yourself of something different in the moment, but in the long run, we believe in the things that we have evidence for. And um, we actually, I mean, we have a word for beliefs that don't have evidence. We call it delusion. And that's exactly what it feels like if you keep telling yourself that you are something when you don't have evidence for it. You feel like you're deluding yourself. You feel like you're lying. Yeah. And um, by building that habit, you end up reinforcing that you are that kind of person. Okay. So I'm just going to ask a few more questions here at the outset. How do you know that the habits you're focusing on 
are the habits that really come from the depth of you. And they're not just like an ego-based idea. Like you mentioned, like someone doubling their income or losing a bunch of weight. I mean, maybe these are ego ideas you have of what's going to make you happy. And then you set off on this habit change path. You accomplish it, but there's like an emptiness inside. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's definitely possible. If you read books like Stumbling on Happiness or, uh, you know, other research around happiness, we often don't really know what makes us happy. I think, you know, uh, it would be uh, misguided to act as if really any human has some clear, distinct vision of exactly what they need in life. I think most of us are going through life, doing the best we can, uh, making guesses along the way, and then trying to update uh, our beliefs and our behavior based on the feedback that we get. So it's really a game of trial and error. I mean, that's kind of the process of living. So I don't think that there's any clear answer to that. Um, the problem is if you ask people a very vague question like that, what kind of person do you want to be? What are your values? What will make you happy? Um, we sort of generally have guesses, but it's a, it's often, people often get locked up when they're asked to answer those questions. They come up with a list of values, uh, or I don't know, they, they try to come up with various solutions, but, uh, it feels very vague. The, the benefit I think of asking yourself, what kind of results do I want is that those tend to be very specific. People, people may not know what exactly how they would live out their values or what their values even are. Um, they may not know what it means to, to live a life that aligns with their soul, but they generally do know what kind of results they want. They generally do know they like an extra hour each week or to lose 10 pounds or to make 10,000 extra dollars a year or whatever that is. And so I think my argument is, okay, that's fine. It's good that you know your results. But rather than focusing on that outcome, let's go one step further and ask ourselves, who is the type of person that could achieve those results? So who is the type of person that could lose 10 pounds? Well, maybe it's the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And so now your habit is focused more on fostering that identity, focused more on showing up as a certain type of person each day, and a little less on tying yourself worth to a particular measurable outcome or, or a goal. Okay, let's get into the model. And you teach these four laws of habit change. Can you introduce the model and these four laws? Sure. So roughly speaking, if you want to build a good habit, you need about four different things to happen. Or I guess we could say you have four different points of intervention. You don't necessarily need all four to happen at the same time, but the more of these that you have going for you, the better off you'll be, the more likely it is the habit will stick. So the first thing that you need is you want your good habits to be obvious. Uh, you know, every habit starts with a kind of cue or a trigger, something that gets your attention. And you want the cues of your good habits to be obvious, available, visible, easy to see. The second thing is that you want your habits to be attractive. The more attractive or appealing a habit is, the more you're going to feel motivated to do it. It's going to feel enticing to you. The third thing that you want is you want your habits to be easy. Uh, every behavior in life has a certain amount of difficulty associated with it, a certain amount of energy or effort that's required. And the simpler, more convenient, frictionless, in other words, the easier a behavior is, the more likely you are to stick with it. So the third thing is you want to make it easy. And the fourth and final one is you want to make it satisfying. The more satisfying or enjoyable a habit is, the more you have some kind of signal of pleasure, the more likely you are to stick with it in the long run. And so those four, make it obvious, make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. They give you four different places that you can intervene, four different levers you can pull on uh, to build a good habit and get it to stick. And I think it's worth noting here as we cover those four, if you want to break a bad habit, you just invert those four. So rather than making it obvious, you want to make the cues of your bad habits invisible, hide them, get them out of sight, unsubscribe. Rather than making it attractive, you want to make it unattractive. Rather than making it easy, you want to make it difficult, add friction, increase steps, make it less convenient. And then finally, rather than making it satisfying, you want to make it unsatisfying, add a consequence, have some kind of immediate cost to the behavior. Now, you know, of course, we'll talk about some examples here. And the purpose of the book is to kind of break all those down on what you can actually do to make those four things happen. Mm -hmm. But roughly speaking, those are the four laws. Make it obvious make it attractive, make it easy, make it satisfying. Okay, so I thought what we could do together is go through creating a good habit together, and then I'm going to ask you to help me break a personal bad habit. But let's start right. with creating a good habit that I think our listeners might be interested in. And you can pick which of these 
you'd like to take us through? Maybe it's uh, eating a healthy diet or exercising more or developing a daily meditation practice. Pick one and take us through it step by step. Sure. Okay. So let's uh, let's go ahead and start with um, let's start with the exercise one. Okay. So um, we're going to build an exercise habit. All right. First thing we want to do is make it obvious. So there are a couple elements to this. Uh, the first question is, well, obvious when you know, like when is this new routine going to live in my life? And so there's one concept that I talk about in the book. It's referred to as an implementation intention. So there are well over a hundred studies on implementation intentions. And basically what it asks you to do is to fill out a sentence that says something like, I will exercise on this day at this time in this place. And implementation intentions have been used for every habit from going to the polls and voting, recycling more frequently, getting your flu shot, um, quitting smoking, and of course, exercise. And so the idea here is that if you specifically state when and where you're going to perform a behavior, you're two to three times more likely to follow through. Um, and so the, uh, the lesson, I think, is a lot of people feel like what they lack is motivation when what they really lack is clarity. Uh, we kind of wake up and have this vague notion of this time it'll be different. You know, I'll try harder. Uh, I'm going to work harder. I'll, I'll do better. I'll eat better. Um, but those vague notions are, you know, totally uh, worthy, but they're too vague, too nonspecific. Uh, they lack a concrete idea of where the habit lives in your life. So that's the first thing you can do. Make it obvious by choosing a time and a place where that's going to live. Okay, so I say I'm going to exercise three times a week. I put it in my calendar, and then the date shows up, and I blow it off. Yep. It's a great intention, but that's not my problem. My problem is I blow it off. For sure. Okay, so let's let's take that example. So let's just add a little more detail to it. Let's say that you uh, you're like, all right, uh, tomorrow's going to be the day I'm going to go for a run. I'm gonna I'm gonna wake up at six and I'm gonna go for a run before work. And then, as you say, six a.m. rolls around and uh, your alarm goes off. Your bed is warm. It's cold outside. You're like, eh, I'll just press snooze instead. So if we rewind the clock and we come back to today and you make that same implementation intention, but then let's say you send a text to a friend and you say, hey, let's meet at the park at 630. Well, now 6 a.m. rolls around and your bed is still warm and it's still cold outside. But if you don't get up and go for a run, you're a jerk because you leave your friend at the park all alone. And so suddenly this is another strategy. This is what is called a commitment device. So a commitment device is a choice that you make in the present that locks in or commits you to a behavior in the future. So in this case, texting your friend is a commitment device for running the next morning. And so I mentioned uh, earlier that the second law is to make it attractive. Well, suddenly what you've done now by sending that text is you have simultaneously made it more attractive to get up and go for a run and less attractive on the bad habit side uh, to sleep in and press news. And so uh, commitment devices are one way to, now we've made it obvious, we've decided when and where, now we also have made it attractive or more attractive than it otherwise would be. We've kind of like changed the calculus that's going on in our mind. Um, and part of the reason for that is because the behavior now bears an immediate cost, right? And uh, you'll see that this is true for many habits that simultaneously while you're building the good one, you're kind of crowding the bad version out. So you're, you're building the habit of waking up and running early and you're crowding out the version of or the habit of sleeping in. And sometimes I like to think about behavior change in that way, that it's sort of like one plant crowding out another. And sometimes if you have multiple behaviors that you want to build, it's actually more useful just to focus on the positive one and kind of letting that naturally crowd out the bad behavior. You know, if you watch TV at 7 p.m. and you feel like you're doing that too much, well, forget about that for a second. If you say want to build a journaling habit, well, now you can say after work, I go to a coffee shop and this becomes a journaling coffee shop. And by definition, every minute that you're in there journaling is a minute you're not watching TV. So you can sort of, uh, sometimes you can kind of kill two birds with one stone there. But that shows us how we can start to layer these strategies. So you've got make it obvious and make it attractive working for you in that case. Okay. We're going to make so it easy. That, that makes me yeah, happy. I'm right. glad we're going to make it easy. Maybe I'll actually do it if it's really easy. And that actually is precisely the idea. Um, in fact, by making it easy, you automatically tend to make the habit more attractive. You can imagine, for example, um, doing one push-up sounds much more attractive than doing 50. Um, and so... 
by scaling it down, um, you make the habit more likely that, that it's going to stick. Now, I want to offer a practical strategy here because I think people implicitly understand this idea that, oh, okay, easier behaviors are more, more interesting, more likely to stick. So the practical strategy is what I refer to as the two-minute rule. So the two-minute rule says take whatever habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 30 books a year becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week to continue our exercise example becomes take out my yoga mat. Now, sometimes when I tell people that they resist it a little bit because they're like, okay, I know the real goal isn't just to like take my yoga mat out, right? I know I actually want to do the workout. So if this is some kind of mental trick, then like, why would I fall for it basically? And I understand if you feel that way, but so I have this reader, his name's Mitch and, um, he ended up losing over 100 pounds, and for the first six weeks that he went to the gym, he had this rule for himself where he wasn't allowed to stay for longer than five minutes. So he would get in the car, drive to the gym, get out, do half an exercise, get back in the car, drive home. And it sounds ridiculous. It seems silly, like it's not going to get him the results he wants. But if you step back, what you realize is that he was mastering the art of showing up. He was becoming the type of person that went to the gym, even if it was just for five minutes. And I think this is a deeper truth about habits that often gets overlooked, which is that a habit must be established before it can be improved. You know, you have to make it the standard in your life before you can worry about optimizing or scaling it up from there. And for whatever reason, we're so focused on finding the best business idea, the perfect workout program, the ideal diet plan. We're so focused on optimizing that we don't give ourselves permission to show up, even if it's just in a small way. So the two-minute rule kind of helps overcome that tendency to bite off more than you can chew or to think it has to be perfect at the start, and it gives you a way to build a habit that's so small that it is actually easy. And I think if you combined all those, you could say, all right, make it obvious. I'm going to run at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. Make it attractive. I'm going to have a friend join me at the park. Make it easy. The first day, all I'm really focused on is putting my shoes on and getting out the door. And if I have to send my friend a text and be like, hey, sorry, I can't make today, that's actually fine. I'm giving myself permission to do that. But what I have to do is get the shoes on and lock the door. Um, and then once that becomes like the routine, maybe you scale it up. Maybe you graduate the habit to another level that is still easy for you after, say, two weeks or four weeks. So now I get my shoes on, I go out the door, and I meet my friend at the park. But... Uh, my small habit is I have to run for at least five minutes. And then once that's done, then I turn back around and I, I can come home if I want. Um, so you kind of get the idea there. Is this a phrase, atomic habits? Is that referring to these small changes? Right. So the phrase atomic habits, I chose the word atomic for three reasons. And the first one is exactly what you're mentioning here. So the first meaning of the word atomic is small or tiny, like an atom, Right. The second meaning of the word atomic is the fundamental unit in a larger system. So like atoms build into molecules, molecules build into compounds, and so on. And in a lot of ways, I sort of feel like these small habits, that they're kind of like the atoms of our lives. They're like these little fundamental units that make up your larger daily routine. And then the third and final meaning is the source of immense energy or power. And I think if you put all three of those together, you sort of understand the narrative arc of the book and sort of the, certainly the meaning of the title, which is if you make changes that are small and easy to do and you layer them on top of each other like units in a larger system, then you can up, end up with some really powerful, remarkable results in the long run. Okay. And then the, the fourth law that you apply to establishing a good new habit is making it satisfying. How am I making this exercise satisfying? Right. So you can sort of think as any, of any behavior or any habit as producing multiple outcomes across time. So broadly speaking, we could say that there's like an immediate outcome and an ultimate outcome. And people often ask like, okay, if bad habits are bad for me, then like, why would I do them? Right. And, you know, if it's, if it's not so, uh, so bad, then why do I keep coming back to it? And the answer is um, all habits serve you in some way. And in the case of bad habits, it's often the case that the immediate outcome is actually kind of favorable. Like the immediate outcome of eating a donut is great. It's sweet. It's sugary. It's tasty. It's only the ultimate outcome that you keep doing that for a year or two years or five that is unfavorable. Same thing for smoking a cigarette. You know, the immediate outcome of smoking a cigarette is maybe you get to socialize with some friends outside of work or you curb your nicotine craving. It's only the ultimate outcome two or five or 10 years down the line that's unfavorable. 
with good habits, it's often the reverse. Like, what is the reward for working out for a week? Not a whole lot. Like, your body looks the same in the mirror at the end of the night. Scale hasn't really changed. If anything, you might be sore. So the rewards of your good habits are often delayed. They accumulate much later. And this is one of the challenges, which is that the costs of your good habits are often in the present, and the costs of your bad habits are in the future. And because we have this, because we're wired to kind of focus on the immediate outcome, we often see or seek the benefits that bad habits provide right now and overlook the downsides that they have in the long run. So for good habits, what we need to do then is we have these delayed rewards that we are trying to accumulate. So we need something in the present to make it feel like, hey, this is good. This is worthwhile. I should do this. Now, the ultimate form of this is when doing the habit is an affirmation of your desired identity. So like literally, you could be in the middle of doing a squat or doing a push-up. And it is, even if you are consciously thinking this, it is reinforcing the idea that I'm a healthy person, I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts, I finish when I start, all that kind of all those good feelings that are affirming that identity that you want to have. But the truth is, early on, most people don't feel that. The first time you go to the gym, you kind of feel uncertain, uh, unsure, like you don't belong. So you need to show up for consistently to kind of build that identity up. And so one way to do this is to use what psychologists refer to as a reinforcement device or some kind of external reinforcer. So for example, uh, for every five times you go to the gym, maybe you get to take a bubble bath to reward yourself. Or uh, for um, every month that you don't miss a workout that's scheduled, then maybe you get to reward yourself by buying, I don't know, a new jacket or investing in something that you enjoy. And the key here is that you want to pick a reward that doesn't conflict with your desired identity, right? Like if the identity you're trying to build is I don't miss workouts, I'm a healthy person, and then you reward yourself with each workout with a pint of ice cream, then you're kind of casting votes that conflict. But if you reward yourself with the bubble bath, well, now it's kind of like, hey, I'm casting another vote for taking care of my body. And ultimately, that's like what the workout is trying to, to move, me, move me toward anyway. Um, so those external reinforcers can be good, provided that they're aligned with the type of person you want to become. Mm-hmm. Now, James, you mentioned towards the beginning of this conversation that there's a, a level of trial and error when it comes to, is this new habit really something that's going to deliver the joy and satisfaction I thought when I set out? So how do we know when we're putting a new habit into action, whether or not it maybe just isn't all that rewarding. We thought it was going to be, but it's not like, okay, I made my bed every day for a year. I did it. And at the end I thought, you know, I don't actually feel like a more organized person. I don't actually care. Didn't do anything. Mm. Didn't up my level of satisfaction in my life at all. It was a myth. Who cares about making the bed? I'm just giving a ridiculous example for this point, but it might (laughs) not really make me feel anything. Do you know? I thought it would, I tried it and it didn't. Or how do we know, oh, you know, I'm a quitter. I quit. I just quit. How do we know the difference? Well, in the long run, I think this is why it's important to have a process of like reflection and review. So for example, uh, I do an annual review each year. The end of the year, count up how many workouts I did, how many I did each month, how many new places I traveled to, how many articles I wrote, a variety of other things. And really what it is, it's less a chance to like count perfectly and more a chance for me to ask, hey, are my habits still serving me? You know, like, am I still moving in the direction that I want? And then uh, in the summer, so six months later, I do what I call an integrity report, where I ask three questions. First question is, what are my core values? So what are the principles I care about and try to live by? Second question is, you get to pat yourself on the back. It's, how did I live by these values each year? So it's like talk about the good stuff. And then so the third question is the most important one, which is, how did I fail to live by these? And it's a chance for you to ask yourself, are my habits aligning with the values that I want? Are they making me happy or reinforcing that desired identity or helping me become the person I want to become? So I think from a big picture view, it's nice that, no, I'm not saying everybody has to do those two things, but it's nice to have at least some point when you check in and reflect and ask yourself, okay, are these things serving me? Now, on the more granular basis, I think you often, you don't have to necessarily wait till every six months or every year to figure that out. Uh, if you have a good measurement to track it. And this can be really challenging because choosing the right form of measurement, it can actually be very hard. I mean, this happens all the time. People pick a form of measurement, like if we stick with the exercise example, 
They use the number on the scale. But then pretty soon, your weight becomes like a signal for your self-worth and whether things are going well. And it's less about being a healthy person and more about just making the number on the scale move. Or in school, it just becomes about getting an A and not about actually learning something. Um, and that's the danger is that when the measurement becomes the target, it starts to cease to be a good measure because you're not really using it as a way to inform, oh, I'm moving in the right direction, I'm directionally accurate. You're using it as like the ultimate arbiter of am I a good person or not, or am I making progress or not? Um, so if you are able to select the right form of measurement, then I think you can have a much better idea of whether that's moving you toward the thing you want to achieve. But the challenge of this <laughs> is what we were mentioning earlier, which is we often don't quite know what we want. Um, so it really requires a lot of self-awareness and clarity, some time to think and reflect, is this actually what I'm trying to get? Um, and only once you understand what you're optimizing for, uh, can you choose a measurement that tells you whether you're moving in the direction of that thing that you were trying to optimize. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm really interested in this integrity report. I'm curious when you fill it out and you ask, what are my core values? Let's say the last time that you filled it out, do you remember what, what you came up with? Um, yeah, so they don't change that much uh, each year, but I do try to like revisit the list and see if there's anything um, that, you know, I, a, a new concept or quality that I want to add to it. So I'm pulling up my, uh, my most recent one here. So the, the core values that I had last time, I sort of broke them into four buckets and then I have like questions underneath each one. So the values were growth, self-respect, grit, and contribution. And then for each one, I have a couple questions. Like for example, for the contribution one, am I contributing to the world around me or am I just consuming from it? Uh, am I somebody others can count on? Am I helping make things better for other people? So that kind of like, it's not just about like listing a value because it is, I don't know, it's kind of easy to say just if it's a word, but if you have to actually answer that question or sit with that for a little longer, then you have to get a little more clear about are, are you actually doing some of these things. Okay, let's go ahead and break a bad habit. So here's my confessional moment, James. I've been right. a nail biter my whole life. I've quit a couple times, and it's lasted for a few months, but it hasn't lasted that long. How can I use your model to break the nail-biting habit? Yeah, good question. Okay, so uh, I'm going to use this as a way to walk through the model and kind of, I want to, hopefully people will be able to get broader principles out of this. So typically for breaking a bad habit, really good places to intervene are that first and third stage. So in this case, we make it invisible or make it difficult. Now, for biting your nails, that's a hard thing to do because you can't really make your fingers invisible, right? Like you, they're always there. They're always on your hands. So that's one challenge. So uh, blocking out the cue, removing your fingers, isn't really an option here. So you kind of got to skip that one. Then we go to the second stage, make it unattractive. Well, this is a little challenging too, and this is true for many uh, bad habits, which is as soon as the thought arises, you kind of, you have this craving to bite them, even if it's like kind of non-conscious, you're working on something and then maybe chewing your nail or whatever. So um, what we're left with in this particular case are the last two stages. So first stage, make it difficult. Okay. There are actually quite a few novel solutions here that you could do. Um, I have one reader who told me that they learned to stop biting their nails by getting Invisalign. Because when they got Invisalign, you put the, the liners, the retainers on your teeth, and you cannot actually bite your nails. Um, so it, it adds this, uh, it makes it very difficult to do so. You have to take it out every single time. And that kind of adds maybe enough friction to the task. You're like, okay, I know I don't want to do this. So I'm not going to take the liner out and you know do all that. So uh, that makes it very difficult. And a really extreme example would be, you know, sometimes if kids are doing it, like tape gloves on or something like that, so you can't actually access the nail. But that's the same kind of principle, make it difficult, increase friction. Um, and then we have the fourth and final step, which is to make it unsatisfying. So this is where you get some of those nail polishes that people will put on that taste terrible. Um, and so by adding the nail polish, you're making it really gross and kind of vomit-inducing to bite the nail. Uh, and so the hope here is that the cue will happen. You see your fingers, you are doing whatever it is where you usually bite your nail. The craving will still happen. You'll kind of feel the urge to do it. 
And if you don't have Invisalign or some other uh, make it difficult strategy, then maybe you still bite your nail, but it tastes terrible. And the hope is that you can continue to learn or train your brain so that the next time around you start to learn, oh, this isn't serving me. I shouldn't do this anymore. And if you want to take that strategy to an even more extreme level, then you can use, um, there's a little device, you may have heard of it before. It's called the Pavlock. And it's a little wristband, kind of looks like a Fitbit or something, but you can program it to uh, shock you. It like provides a little electrical shock and it has an accelerometer in it. So that can actually track when you bring your fingers to your mouth. Um, and so you could Im imagine, for example, wearing this in between meals. And then anytime you bring your hands up like that, you get a little buzz and that reminds you uh, to not do it. Or in many cases actually makes it very unsatisfying because it's not fun to be shocked. But those four strategies, that's kind of what you're looking at. Those are your options that your places to intervene. And I think in this case, uh, step three and step four are probably your best uh, options. Okay. So once again, this kind of brings me to the original question I asked about the sort of inner change and outer change and how they come together or don't. There's nothing about what you just described that addresses the anxiety that might be happening inside or what's going on that is uh, driving the behavior. Do you know what I mean? Because is it possible that, okay, I put some kind of chemical on my fingers, I don't bite my nails, but the, the thing inside that was scared or, or childlike that wants to put, you know, the fingers in the mouth like a child, whatever that might be, that's still there. It's just going to come out in another way someplace. I haven't addressed the psychological level. That's my question. Yes, for sure. So this is true of pretty much any habit. You know, we go through life and we build habits mostly to solve the problems of life with less energy or effort than we would otherwise need. So you can imagine, for example, you mentioned these psychological needs. You might come home from work and feel stressed and exhausted. And one person solves that problem, so to speak, by smoking a cigarette. And another person does it by playing video games for an hour. And a third person does it by going for a run. And we can see that the range of ways to solve that underlying need are very wide. And some of them are healthy and productive, and some are unhealthy and unproductive. And so uh, in this case, not only would you want to uh, eliminate the need to bite the nails or the way to, you know, the way in which you do it, increase friction, et cetera, but also come up with a replacement habit that maybe serves that deeper psychological need. This can ultimately, what we're talking about here, is changing the internal story that you have around the behavior. Um, I hesitate to say that as like a first line of defense because one, it sounds a little like um, uh, airy fairy foo foo, like, okay, yeah, just tell yourself a different story and then everything will be fine. Um, but also because it's very, uh, it's very much a long-term game to be able to do that, assuming that you don't have an epiphany. Now, you can sometimes have an epiphany. For example, there's a reader that I mentioned in the book. He, uh, he bit his nails for many years. And then through sheer willpower, he was able to not do it for a week or two. His nails grew out. And then he went to get a manicure. And when he got it done, the, the person who was giving him the manicure said, you know, aside from biting your nails, like you actually have pretty healthy nails. They look nice. Um, and it was the first time that his fingers looked nice in a very long time. And so suddenly what happened, in his words at least, was that he had a new story to tell. He was able to take, uh, to take pride in how his nails looked. And this type of thing happens all the time with behavior change uh, or just the behaviors that we stick to consistently. As soon as you start to take pride in a particular trait or aspect of your life, you're very committed to maintaining those habits. People compliment you on your biceps, you never miss arm day at the gym, right? If they... Um, compliment you on how your hair looks. You buy all kinds of hair products to take care of it. And so finding a way to change that story and take pride in something that you previously feared or felt shame or guilt about is one way to maintain that. But I think we're also still talking about kind of two different things. Like one is taking pride in the nails and one is rectifying or using a replacement habit to resolve the psychological tension or stress or anxiety that was the root cause uh, that that behavior was serving. And so um, this is what I finish Atomic Habits with. I say at the very end, the holy grail of habit change is not a single 1% improvement. It's a thousand of them. And so ultimately what we need if we're really committed to making changes in our lives is a variety of small changes all layered on top of each other and oriented towards the same single goal. 
So in this case, it may be true that you buy the padlock bracelet and you put on the gross, disgusting nail polish and you invest in Invisalign for six months and you start to ask some of those deeper questions about what is the psychological tension that's driving me? What is the underlying stress I need to resolve in a healthier way? Can I find a way to develop some pride and uh, around how my nails look and the health of my hands? And if you can do maybe not all those things, but maybe half or four or five, uh, then collectively, that is a system of change that can maybe move you towards something more sustainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think when you start talking about what's happening at the underlying level, that's where I get really interested. Because I think, for example, with addiction, I've seen people change an addiction, drop an addiction. But what's driving them, it just shows up someplace else. Do you know what I mean? Maybe they're proud. They're, they have a great sense of their new identity as somebody who no longer does X, Y, Z, whatever it might be. But they still have an addictive personality. I mean, it's still driving them. Right. They, they haven't really changed in a wholesale kind of way. Just the exterior has changed. Yeah. You know, it's a tough thing. Um, you see this a lot in the fitness industry that people who are like really extreme on the fitness side, whether they're, you know, professional athletes or bodybuilders or CrossFitters or nutritional coaches or whatever, they, they often have like relatively kind of addictive personalities. Um, and so maybe before they struggled with drug addiction or an eating disorder or something like that. And now they don't have that thing that they're struggling with anymore, but they're kind of addicted to exercise to a certain degree. Um, And so that's kind of what you're saying where it shows up somewhere else. And um, I don't know exactly how I feel about that because on the one hand, uh, life is hard and we have to find ways to cope. And I think we can roughly put behaviors into a couple of different categories. Like you can imagine there are some categories of behavior that tend to default or skew toward a more negative side. For example, uh, taking meth or cocaine defaults towards more addictive behavior, more unhealthy outcomes. And then there are other behaviors that certainly in the extreme can also be negative, like for example, becoming addicted to exercise. But generally speaking, uh, exercise defaults more towards a productive, healthy outcome, certainly much more than taking substances. And so I think often in life, like life is not, you're never going to have a life that does not have problems. And so in many cases, the quest of self-improvement is not to have a life that doesn't have problems, but to upgrade your problems. And so partially, I feel like those people should be praised for upgrading their problems, for making the advancement from a behavior that really wasn't serving them well uh, to doing something that generally is a more positive influence on their life, even if it's not perfect. But there is still also this deeper work to be done to try to keep things within the lines and to try to maintain a more balanced and holistic uh, version of well-being so that you aren't always going off the rails in whatever the thing is that you happen to be investing investing in. And so I kind of simultaneously think both of those things are true, that it is important for us to do the deep work uh, so that we can live a more balanced life and also important to ask ourselves, how can we upgrade our problems and to have enough grace and forgiveness with ourselves to feel good about the fact that we're directionally moving forward, even if things aren't quite perfect yet. In the book, Atomic Habits, you talk about these decisive moments that come up. And I think that all of us know those moments. Those moments, you know, it could be where we've opened the refrigerator and we're like, hmm, what should I do? I'm not really hungry, but I want something. Or it could be uh, much more of a decisive moment related to a habit that's really important to our integrity as a person. But we know we're in a choice point. And what do you have to say that will help us make the choice that uh, we're going to be glad we made when we do our review six months later? Hmm. Well, yeah, so to kind of unpack this idea a little further, it's sort of like throughout your day, you face these little forks in the road, mm-hmm. um, you know, so like an example is um, my wife gets home from work, it's like 5.15, and either we change into our workout clothes and we go to the gym, or we sit on the couch and eat Indian food and watch reruns of the office. And both of those nights are good nights, but they're very different. And the thing that kind of determines what happens in that two-hour block of time is do we change into our workout clothes or not? So I think that's the first question you can ask is like walk back the behavioral chain 
and try to figure out what is the choice. When does that moment occur? When does that fork in the road occur? And try to optimize for that. Because really what that tells us is, okay, we don't actually have to optimize for the two-hour workout or driving to the gym or like all this other stuff that happens. We can kind of let that be if we just try to optimize for changing to, into our workout clothes. And once you figure out what that decisive moment looks like, what choice is made in that moment, then you can start to organize the rest of your day around it. So we could do things like, okay, we could prime the environment to make that easy. Maybe the night before we set out our workout clothes and our gym bag and our water bottle and all that is set up so that when we walk in the door at 515, that's a very easy choice to make. Or maybe we, as I mentioned before, text a friend and commit to uh, meeting them at the gym at 530. And so now we've got a little social um, proof kind of nudging us along. And there are a variety of other examples too, but the idea is that once you figure out the true thing that starts that behavioral chain, then you can start to organize around that little moment, that little fork in the road, rather than worrying about the whole routine. Okay. Well, what about a decisive moment that many of us face, which is just going to a restaurant and figuring out what we're going to order when we're in the restaurant? You know, it's a decisive moment. Mm. Do I get the risotto or do I get the salad? Yeah, there are a bunch of things you can do here. I mean, you know, all the strategies that we've talked about so far. So part of it could be an identity shift. For example, you could say, you know, if you are focused on becoming a vegan or a vegetarian, then you could identify as I'm the type of person that doesn't eat meat, uh, doesn't eat meat. And then that, you know, starts to cut down the menu options. Or you could look at the, um, uh, I just mentioned priming the environment with setting your stuff out beforehand. You could look at the menu before you arrive and select something then when you're not like in the throes of the maybe peer pressure of the group and what people are getting. So you've kind of like pre-decided, makes it a little bit easier for yourself. Um, another thing that you can do is you could just say, you know what, I'm going to order whatever I want, but I'm going to use a strategy that locks in how much food I'm going to eat. So for example, I do this sometimes if I if I want to cut down on the amount of calories I have, then I'll ask the waiter or the waitress to box up half the meal before they serve it to me. If I waited until they brought it out and I was like, oh, I'll just eat half, like that would never work. Um, so uh, there are a variety of strategies from locking in the behavior beforehand to identifying a particular type of person to cut down the options to uh, selecting it before uh, you, you show up. But any of those can help with that choice in the moment. Okay, James, I'm going to ask you a couple more personal questions. What's been the hardest sure. habit you've ever broken or tried to break? Maybe you haven't been successful. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, for sure. I, you know, I say this a lot, but my readers and I are peers. Uh, we go through this together. I struggle with all the same things everybody else struggles with. My publisher told me when I was standing in Atomic Habits, she was like, we write the books we need. Um, and I, I felt that a lot, you know, like I'm, I'm just trying to figure it out too. So, um, I don't know if it's the hardest one I've ever had to break or struggled with breaking, but it's one that I still struggle with, uh, which is for lack of a better term, a power down routine. Um, so I have this rule for myself where I don't cheat myself on sleep. So I try to get eight or nine hours each night, especially if I'm training heavy in the gym. But um, I kind of get this second wind around like nine or 10. And it's like, ah, maybe I'll just check email for a minute or maybe I'll work on that chapter for a second. And of course, it's never just a minute and, you know, nine or 10 turns into midnight or one. And if I go to bed at one, well, now I'm kind of faced with this trade-off where, okay, do I get eight hours of sleep or do I wake up uh, earlier because I tend to do better work earlier in the morning? And I always choose to sleep, but it always bothers me that I haven't figured out how to, um, how to master that behavior. And so uh, similar to what I just mentioned, walk back the behavioral chain. If I ask myself that line of questioning, you start to realize, all right, what's the problem? Well, the problem is I'm going to bed at one, okay? Why am I going to bed at one? Well, because I stayed up late answering email, all right? Why am I staying up late, late answering email? Well, because I have trouble shutting down and I checked it again at nine. And then you start to realize, okay, the real problem actually isn't going to bed late. The problem is that I check my email uh, after the workday is over. And so then it, that's, that reveals a different habit that you need to focus on. Um, and the truth is I've thought a lot about my sleep habits, but I probably haven't thought that much about my email habits. And so maybe that's an area where I need to focus. Have you tried making it very unsatisfying by getting an accountability partner like your wife to make sure that you don't check your email before you go to bed? I'm just kind of joking with you, James. Yeah. <laughs> 
she uh, she has better habits than I do, so I've learned a lot from her, um, and uh, she's definitely a, a force for good in my life. But that's not one that we should deny yet. Okay, just uh, two final questions. One, people often ask, how many days does it take to form a new habit? You know, this whole idea, it takes 40 days, just like this 40 days crossing the desert. Is there any <laughs> any science to defend that, or is that just something people have come up with? Yeah, good one. You, I mean, you hear all kinds of stuff, right? 21 days, 30 days, 40 days. 66 days is a very popular number right now because there was one study that showed that on average, it took about 66 days to build a habit. But even within that study, the range was quite wide. So this, uh, the answer is it depends, but that's like kind of obvious as soon as you talk about it a little more deeply because it's like, okay, if the habit's very simple, like drinking a glass of water at lunch, well, then that study found that maybe it only takes a few weeks. Whereas if this, the habit is much more difficult, like going for a run after work every day, then the study found it takes seven, eight, nine months. Um, and the way, as a side note, the way that researchers measure this is what is called an automaticity curve. And so basically they look at, they plot out how automatic the behavior is. Um, and you basically hit this um, asymptote at some point where it kind of tapers off and it's about as automatic as it's going to be. And whenever you hit that amount, uh, hit that phase, that's when they decide, okay, the habit has been built. Um, but I think the true answer, the honest answer to how long does it take to build a habit is forever. Because if you stop doing it, it's no longer a habit. And I think that, you know, I say that somewhat snarkily, but also it, there, it, there's truth to it in the sense that a habit is not a finish line to be crossed. It's not something that you do for 30 days or 40 days or 66 days or whatever the number is. It's a lifestyle to be lived. And if you embrace it that way, then you start to realize the importance of looking for changes that are small, sustainable, non-threatening, something you can integrate into your new normal. And so I think that that is the, the real way to think about it is what is something that I can make part of my lifestyle and not what is a 40 day challenge or a 30 day sprint or whatever that I can do. And then I'll be a healthy person or a creative person or whatever the habit is you want to build. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then finally, James, you've worked with all kinds of people developing new good habits. What are the new good habits that you've found people find really the most rewarding? Like I did it. Mm -hmm. and I'm so glad I did it. Yeah. Well, uh, you almost never regret getting a workout in. There's almost, you, you might not feel like doing it at first, but it's very rare that you get done with an exercise and you, or get done exercising. You feel like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. Um, so exercise certainly is one. Um, writing is probably the one that can have such a dramatic impact on the outcomes of people's lives. It's certainly been true for me. So perhaps I'm biased to give that answer, but um I say that not only because writing is like thinking and it helps you clarify what you're feeling and so on. It can be very useful even if it's private, but particularly because we live in an age of almost infinite leverage. We live in an age of high technology. Um, so many people are connected on the internet now that writing is probably the best form of networking that we have in the world. Um, your network is just the value or the reputation that you have among the people that know you. And the more that you write about things and share them publicly, in fact, I think we've extended even further and say, the more you do interesting things and share them publicly, whether it's writing about it, podcasts, YouTube, whatever, uh, the more you kind of become a magnet for like-minded people. And so you attract your own network by building a creation habit in that, in that sense. So writing is one example, but any kind of creating habit is a good one. And then the third and final one that I'll offer that's like a little one, but uh, I think surprises people is leaving your phone in another room while you work. Um, it's, we are also, and I'm like everybody else, if I have my phone next to me, I'll check it every three minutes. But most of the time, maybe 90% of the time or so, I'll leave my phone in another room while I work. And I have a home office, so my phone's only 30 seconds away, but I never go up and get it. And that's always interesting to me because it's like, well, did I want it or not? You know, like in one sense, I wanted it bad enough to check it every three minutes if it was next to me. But in another sense, I never wanted it enough to work 30 seconds and go get it. And I think that there are a lot of things like that in our lives, that we're surrounded by technology that is so convenient, so frictionless, so pervasive, that just by removing it a little bit, by increasing the space between you and the, the distraction a little bit, you'll be surprised by how rapidly it fades away. 
So leaving your phone in another room while you work is another good one. Very good. James Clear, thank you so much. Thank you for being a guest on Insights at the Edge. Great. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with James Clear. He's the author of the book Atomic Habits, an easy and proven way to build good habits and break bad ones. And he's the founder of the Habits Academy. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com. Waking up the world.